The New Testament reading is Romans 6, verses 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. He sh how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Amen. Good morning. It's an honor to be able to bring God's word to you again today. Pastor Tony, thank you again for your leadership. Grateful for you. If you are new or visiting, again, welcome. If we haven't had the privilege of meeting yet, my name is uh, Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors here at Lydie's Church. And last week, as we opened up our new year, we looked at Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And as I considered this week, we're going to be there again today. And I wanted to expound a one step further upon that text. That is, we approach our new year that it may frame the way we see ourselves, the way we see our world, and the way we worship our Lord. I'm going to read it one more time for us today. For Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous will live by faith. Amen. Last week we looked at how the gospel is our greatest need and we, if we look at the world around us we see that our world is not moving in a direction that glorifies and honors God or something that we would ever want to see every time you turn on the news or maybe you don't even turn on the news anymore because it's so discouraging. We look at our world and we looked at last week why the gospel was our greatest need how the gospel is the power of God, not a manifestation of the power of God, but it itself is the power of God. And we spoke about how it was for us, not just for the day we, we get saved, but for our lives in every stage of our life, our marriages, our relationships, and how it is for our world that none are too far gone. The arm of the, law, the Lord is not too short that he cannot save. And as I looked at... Uh, Considered this further this week, I looked more at our world, and I'm sure you would agree with me in this, the more you watch and see what's going on in our world, the more you are burdened for it. In our young adult Sunday school, we're, we're going through a book called Fault Lines, 
which deals with what's going on in our culture and how to engage it biblically, how to think biblically about what's going on around us. And, and seeing what's going on, there can be this great uh, desire to build up in us, not to sit on our hands, but to do something. We look at our world and say, we must do something. We cannot sit idle, we cannot sit still. And that is, that is not necessarily a bad desire. We look at our world, we all want to do something. We look at our, the world our children are growing up in, and we say we want a different world than the world our children currently have. What do we do? But in that, in that burden being placed upon us, we also must be conscious and, and carefully consider what we do with that burden. We must engage the Bible. We must engage with what God says. Scripture must be what guides us how we deal with this burden in the world in which we see. There's a, a, a story that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones tells. Martin Lloyd-Jones is the author of Spiritual Depression, the book that we're reading this quarter as a church. So I encourage you, if you haven't got a copy, to go and get one this week. He tells a story of the small Welsh village he grew up in. And in this small Welsh village, they did not have a fire department. They had volunteer firefighters. Farmers would volunteer for the fire department. And one evening, the, uh, a city in the, in the center of town went up in flames. Everyone's awake. Everyone rushes down there. People are trying to assess it. The volunteer firefighters come, and they're trying to assess what is happening. What, how do we address this issue? And while they're looking to figure out what to do, they hear this banging sound. Bang. Bang, bang. And they're trying to figure out where the sound is coming from. Where was it? And they hear it just continuing, bang, bang, bang. And one, one of the firefighters happens to look inside the building, and they see the town blacksmith with his largest anvil hammer, with all his power, hitting the steel supporting beam in the middle of the room, inside the building. As hard as he could, Bang, bang, bang. The firefighters, worried about what might happen if he achieves what he is planning to do, rush in and grab him. His adrenaline is pumping so much it takes four or five men to drag this man outside. And they throw him on the ground and then they go and they put out the fire. And after they put out the fire, they turn to the man and they say, do you not know that if you had taken down that supporting beam or that supporting post, not only would the facade of this building fallen out onto the street and kill many people, the floor would have collapsed on top of you and you would have died as well. And the man in his panic and adrenaline looks back up at them and he responds with, well, the building was on fire. I had to do something. And how often can that be the response of the church? The world's on fire. We have to do something. We need to do something. And if we're not careful, even well-meaning Christians, even well-meaning people, we can find ourselves doing things that God has not directed us to do or prioritizing things that God has not called us to prioritize in our effort to stop the fire. One way that I've seen this happen and maybe you've seen this happen, but I will, I will address it because it is, a, it is a way that we hit with the anvil and the church has been very guilty of this. 
One way I've seen this happen, because I was a part of a church who did this, was in a, in a desire to see people come to Christ. We should have a desire for salvation. The church should to reach the lost. We should have that desire. In that desire, there was a haste to get people to pray a prayer. Have you ever seen that before? And desire to say, I want, we want, need people to pray a prayer. So if we can get them to pray a prayer, then everything will be good. Everything will be fine. Because the building's on fire. We need to do something. And I've been in churches where at the end of every service, they'll do what's called an altar call, and they'll call people, and they'll ask people to say the sinner's prayer. And the first time I saw that, I thought that was the most incredible thing in the world. This is amazing. We're, we're giving people the invitation to pray the prayer every single week. This is, ama- this, is, this is amazing. You're watching people come down to the front. This is the best thing I've ever seen. And then I, would, then I stuck around a little bit longer, and I noticed two things is that these invitations were given without the gospel ever being preached. They would preach on having a happy marriage, no reference of the gospel, but it was part of the routine, so they would do an altar call at the end of the message to give your life to Jesus. But there was no gospel presentation. And people put up their hand, and people come down to the front. And I began to think, what are people getting saved from? Or, or, or we would talk about how many people got saved this year, how many people put up their hand and got saved, but I would not see that many people in discipleship classes. You've had 200 people come to Christ this year, and I would see 10 in discipleship class, and you go, what, what's going on? And then I would talk to people, and they would say, well, I don't need to, I, I prayed the prayer, I'm good with God, I can, me and the big guy, and they talk very casually about God, you've heard this before, haven't you? Me and the big guy, We're good. We're good. That is not the gospel Paul is preaching. In an effort to stop the burning of the building, we find ourselves watering down the gospel and making it the gospel that Paul is not preaching here. Paul is not preaching a decision gospel, a get out of, a get out of jail free card, a fire, whatever they call it, fire resist, you don't, you don't go to hell. That's not the gospel Paul is preaching. Paul is not just preaching a gospel of Christ being our Savior. He's preaching a gospel of Christ being our Lord. He is Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. And, he, and, he, and so even though we might be wanting to do something, Paul, we must understand that Paul's gospel is not accounted for gospel. He is not preaching a gospel that is a happy-go-lucky, come and get your blessing, come and get your, come and get your therapy, come feel better about your, what you did on Saturday night. I talked to some person one time, and I noticed they kept on going down to the front, and I said, how many times have you been saved? He goes, oh, about two times a month I get saved. I feel bad. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. My generation is very guilty of being brought into this. Vody Bauckham tells, tells, uses an analogy. It's a postmodernism analogy, but he talks about strawberries and talk, tells a story about a man who loved strawberries and, shared, and wanted his son to enjoy strawberries. So he took his son to a strawberry field and he gives his son strawberries and it's a rich, delicious strawberry right off the vine. But over the years... Strawberries become very popular and they start to be picked and processed and turned into jams and get processed into things like Pop-Tarts and slushies or slush, whatever you call it. And the son doesn't go to strawberry fields but eats Pop-Tarts and has this strawberry slush in the summertime and loves that taste of strawberry slush. And then his father one day takes him back to, the, to the, the strawberry field and gives him a real strawberry and the son doesn't like the taste of the strawberry, spits it out of his mouth. 
And so often can be the gospel in the way we hear it today. It's watered down. The minute we hear repentance from sins, we, we want to spit it out of our mouth. I thought the gospel was about God blessing my life. I thought, my, I thought Jesus was supposed to make me happy. <laughs> but the reality is, is Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, not because it makes you happy. Not because it takes, takes, is a therapeutic issue to it. Not because he wants to rush in to deal with the fire. Paul is going at something much bigger. There is a transformation element to the gospel that does not happen in a quick, quick emotional moment. Paul is speaking about something far greater. And we must be clear about this gospel he is preaching so we might stand on it this year and get the full weight of it. That we might not be ashamed of the gospel. And there's three foundational things, there's three, or you could say transformations, three relationships that are transformed in this gospel as Paul is preaching. I want to highlight them to you today, and there's three things under each one. Paul is going at something much greater than something momentary, much greater than a feeling. And there's three relationships that are transformed in this gospel. The first relationship that is transformed in this gospel, the gospel transforms, first and foremost, our relationship to God. The gospel, first and foremost, transforms our relationship to God. And when the gospel is preached, as Christ says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, repent and believe the gospel. We hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And the gospel is preached. We hear and we realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior, dead in our sin, and the only hope we have is in Jesus, that Christ is the only way. Christ says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Christ is the only way, the narrow way. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to Christ, or leads to eternal life. And he talks about the straight gate or the narrow gate, and that must be seen as almost a turnstile gate, you know, a subway gate. You don't get in just because your parents are godly Christians. You must walk through yourself. You must see your need for salvation. You must see your need for Christ. And in that, the first thing that happens in this re transforming relationship with God is that the Bible talks about and Paul speaks about that we become justified. Now Paul is a brilliant man. He, he's, the word justified or justification is a legal term. It means that you are legally set right before God. There's nothing you do. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short. We have all broken God's law. The Ten Commandments are a mirror for each one of us. You go through that list and you see that weekly, daily, through the hour, we break those all the time in thought, word, and deed. That we all have sinned and we've broken God's law, but Christ being the perfect one who perfectly kept the law for us on our behalf, that God, as we spoke last week, that God on the cross imputes our sinful, our, his, our, our sin to Christ, but in Christ's death and resurrection, God imputes Christ's righteousness to us, that we are justified, it says. In, in, in Galatians chapter 6, it says this, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by his works or by what we do, we are not made right with God by what we do, for he's not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even when we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by our works of the law, since the works of the law in the flesh, no one will be justified. 
that we are first and foremost, our relationship with God is transformed, that we are now taken from death into life, not by what we do, but by what Christ has done for us. Amen. This comes first and foremost. The first element of our transformation in our relationship with God is that we are made right with God. You might not feel it, but it is a declaration that God has made. God has, as a judge, declared by faith in Christ, us right before him. And praise God for that. For there's nothing we could do. The second element that is transformed in this relationship is not only are we justified, but we are sanctified. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this. It says, therefore, any, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, all things have been made new. Now these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their, their transgressions against them, for he has committed us to this word of reconciliation. There is, a, there is a transforming action that has happened in this place, that God has reconciled us. But I wanted to read this text in 1 Corinthians. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to verse 11. He says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified. There's that word. And you were justified, there's that word again, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in, his, and in the spirit of our God. We're justified by Christ and we are sanctified in Christ. Sanctification is the process of, of, of sin being dealt with in our own lives. Now our relationship with God is transformed is that we are justified with God, but our relationship with God is also that we are sanctified, that sin is being removed from our lives. If, if, you, if you have the same relationship with God and, and you struggle with sin in the same way now than you did 20 years ago, there's a problem. And I would, I would go down to the grounds of your justification. But we are sanctified by this work of Christ that the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we are made new day by day. God is transforming each one of us and praise God for that. That I'm not what I used to be. I might not be what I want to be, but I'm not what I used to be. And that is not by works, that's by the Holy Spirit upon each one of our lives. And our relationship with God is transformed by that. Wonderful news this is. That not only does God make me right, but he changes my whole heart. He changes my whole life. Now we're justified by God. We're sanctified by God. And finally, in this point, we're glorified. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30... It says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. There's that word again. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You could also read it in this way, that the glorification of what Paul is speaking about here is that when we will one day be with him. 
That, that we know him in part, we, there is still a distance as we're in this world, that there will one be a day where God and us will be as one, that we will see him with unveiled face, the Bible says. What a thought that is, to see our Lord Jesus as he truly is, as Moses. Moses only saw the back of God. Imagine being able to look him in glory. That this wonderful gospel justifies us, makes us right with God. This wonderful gospel sanctifies us and transforms us. And this wonderful gospel will one day lead to our glorification to be with our God, never to be separated from him again. This gospel leads us that, our, that has transformed our relationship with God. But this gospel doesn't just end there. It also transforms our relationship to sin. The gospel also transforms our relationship to sin. And it transforms our relationships with t- to sin in three specific ways. The first way it transforms our relationships with sin is that it removes the penalty of sin. It removes the penalty of sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That means the price to be paid. The, the, what, the result of sin is death. But the gracious gift of God, that's the gospel in two words, but God. (laughs) But God. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That God on the cross, as we just said, imputes our sin to Christ. And on the cross, God's wrath is poured out upon Christ. That the penalty of our sin is placed upon the Lord Jesus. And not just part of it, all of it. Past, present, and future has all been placed upon the Lord Jesus. The second person of the Trinity. Our sin is placed upon him. Not just part of it, as that hymn goes. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. The Bible says, reckon yourselves dead unto sin and alive unto Christ. That the penalty of sin that was over each one of us in Christ on the cross is no longer that God no longer sees us as we were in our sin, but sees us in his blessed Son then the devil will come and he'll, and he'll try to tell you, you know you've done this and that, and you ought to look at him and say, and what of it? I have been made new in Christ. The penalty of sin is dealt with in this gospel, but not only is the penalty of sin dealt with, the power of sin is dealt with as well. The power of sin is dealt with in our lives. And this comes back to our Old Testament reading today. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace that may increase? May it never be. For how can we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might also walk in newness of life. That the power, of, the power of sin is gone. We do not have to remain in sin any longer. We were once, we were once the Bible says, that we were slaves to sin, and now we're slaves to righteousness. 
No, not to get too graphic in this illustration, but a slave does what their master says. Have you ever tried to stop sinning in life? Now you might try, and you might be successful for a minute. You might be successful for a week. You might be successful for a year. Maybe with one sin. But Calvin says this so well. He says, our, height, our hearts are idol factories. We sin without even, it just comes out of us. And without Christ, there's nothing we can do about it. We're dead in sin. But we've been made alive in Christ. And the power of the Holy Spirit is we do not have to remain in sin any longer, but through the Holy Spirit and his power in our life, we can have freedom from sin. That we say, to, we say in our prayers, Lord, God, remove this desire that I might no longer desire to look at this, but I may desire to be in your presence. That I may no longer to have my tongue with slander, but that my tongue might be to sing praises to you. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. That the power of sin might be removed from our life. And we must be aware of this and we must be careful of it. James says this in James chapter, uh, in James, let me find it here. In James chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Blesses the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And let no one say that, he is, that when he is tempted, I'm being tempted of God. For God cannot, cannot, cannot be tempted excuse me, by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one of us is tempted. And when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, then when the lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. I want to press one point here on this thing of remaining sin. It's easy as Christians to thank God for his grace but be okay with some sin remaining in our life. There's some sins that we would never tolerate but there's others we'll, we'll, we'll tolerate. Little ones. Now, we just read Respectable Sins last year, didn't we? It goes by Jerry Bridges. It goes through a number of those. But the Bible says when sin is conceived, it brings forth death. And there's, no, there's, no, the, there's nothing in grace that coddles sin. But let me use an illustration. There was a man back about 200 years ago who was a circus performer. And he would go around and he would do tricks and he would do certain things and people would give him money for his performances. And one time he's doing a performance and he does his tricks. And at the end of it, everyone's very happy with it, but the man who, who hired him cannot pay him. And so he asks, can we work at another form of payment? The, the man says, okay. He goes, I collect uh, exotic animals. Can I give you an animal? And says, okay. So the man gives him a, a, a baby boa constrictor. An odd gift, is it not? But he carried this baby boa constrictor around with him everywhere he went. And people used to think he was mad. Yeah, that's a wild, what are you doing with that thing? And he would say to them, it's, it's, it's small, I, it's just a baby, what's it going to do? And so he, he kept going with it. It was his pet, it was his friend, and he kept it. It was his companion as it was. 
And he would go, and as nature takes its course, of course, the snake grows, and it grows and grows. And he begins to use this snake in his performing acts, believe it or not. And he trained the snake to do a trick where he would wrap around him, because boa constrictors, they wrap around their prey and they, they crush it. It would wrap around it, and everyone would panic, and then it would unravel, and everyone would clap and cheer, and it was a big performance. And people used to tell him, you're nuts. You are crazy. And he, he would say back to them, I've had this snake from its infancy. I know this thing. He knows me. We are fine. And one time he was in New York City doing a performance. And he does his trick as normal. The snake wraps around him. Everyone gasps. But this time the nature of the snake clicked in. And the snake didn't let go. And it turned his bones into dust in the horror of every person there. When sin remains, it will bring forth death. We must, belittle, we must never belittle small sin in our life. We must never allow sin to be called. Our Lord Jesus died for it. Why would we still want to have anything to do with it? We must go to war, as John Owen puts it, so well, either we are putting death, to, either killing sin or sin is killing us. We must wage war of sin in the remaining in the Christian life that we may be free to sin and enjoy and not, and to, to echo what Paul says, how could we could live any sin anymore? But we might be able to enjoy God in all his fullness. That the penalty of sin was dealt with, the presence of sin, the, the power of sin is dealt with. And finally in the gospel, the presence of sin is dealt with. In Revelation chapter 21, it says this. It says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And they will no longer, and there will no longer be any death. And there will no, will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away that one day the presence of sin will be removed. There will be no more. It will be a remnant of distance past. There will not be any, any ounce of it. You will not hear of it. You will not see it manifest in any form. There will come a day where sin will be gone, that God has saved us. Isaiah even echoes this in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, and he will swallow up death for all time. The Lord will wipe away all the tears from their faces, and he will remove the reproach from his people from all the earth, for God has spoken. That, he, that the one day we will, the penalty of sin will be removed. The power of sin is removed in our lives currently, and one day the very presence of sin will be gone in our lives as well. That we will be made new and with our Lord. This gospel is a good gospel. And if you noticed, the three points in each correlate with each other in the first two points. <laughs> the penalty of sin is removed when we are justified to our Lord. The power of sin is removed in our lives when the Lord sanctifies us. And the presence of sin will be removed in our lives when our Lord Jesus glorifies us. You notice that there is a transforming nature in that. 
It is our great need for it transforms our relationship to God. Our vertical is transformed. But I want to end on one final point. For our relation in this gospel, our relationship with God is transformed and our relationship with sin is transformed. But finally, this gospel transforms our relationship with each other. This is why this gospel is our great need. Because until our relationship is transformed with God and with our sin, there will be no lasting effect here on earth. You can patch up the cracks of a, on the wall of a house, but if the foundation is rotten, those cracks will reemerge. Until sin is dealt with, until man is reconciled to God, until that transforming nature of the Spirit of God is applied, there will be no reconciliation with our fellow man. But when that transformation happens, the transformation is incredible. First John, I'm going to read this and I'll close on this point. First John 4. Did I read it already? It's possible I did. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for the love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And the, love, and the one that does not love does not know God, because God is not, because God is love. By this love, God manifested, by this love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might through him, that we might live through him. In this love, in this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Amen. This is an evidence of the gospel's transforming work in our lives. If I can end with a story, a friend of mine was at a, at a church he was visiting, he was preaching. And he was preaching on forgiveness, which uh, if you're visiting at a church is a pretty big thing to take on, not knowing the people group, but he was anyways. And he was preaching, and he was preaching this gospel, not being ashamed of it, preaching the reconciliation power, how we, our lives are transformed through this gospel. And all of a sudden, he hears this wailing in the sanctuary, this wailing. And all of a sudden, two women emerge at the bottom of the, of the church on either end. Not knowing what's happening, he, he kind of assessing the situation, looks down at the pastor, and all of a sudden these two women run at each other and throw their arms around each other, wailing. And my friend who's preaching, not really sure how to end, the ushers grab the women and they, they take them out the back and the pastor follows. And my friend uh, finishes off his message and closes in prayer and the, the congregation is dismissed. And the congregation leaves and the pastor comes back in and my friend there comes up to the pastor and he goes, what, what was that? What happened there? And the pastor goes, yeah, you don't know who these people are. He goes, that was a mother and a daughter. And they have been, uh, they have been separated for about 10 years because of bitterness towards each other. And they both came back hearing the gospel of reconciliation, the gospel of peace. And we, we have counselors and pastors with them now, and we're praying with them. This gospel does not just remain with God and us. 
It transforms the relationship with each other. This is an evidence of the gospel in our lives. And not only that, it's a witness to our world of the gospel, the way we love one another. Here at Lighty's Church, how is this gospel transforming our relationships with each other? How does this transform us? When he says there, Beloved, if God has so loved us, we ought to ought not we love one another. Have we considered how this love is for another? Do we ever harbor anything? Do we ever keep anything on our heart? See how much God has forgiven us. And may it lead us to love one another greatly. And as Christ says in Matthew chapter 5, let your light shine before man that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This gospel and this living out this gospel as a church will, have a, will be a megaphone to our city. It'll be a megaphone in our families. It'll be a megaphone in our workplaces. For this gospel has transformed our relationship with God. It's transformed our relationship to sin and it transforms our relationships to each other. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for this gospel and the power of it in each one of our lives. We thank you, God. It transforms our eternity and it transforms our right now. So, Lord, we ask by your Holy Spirit, may you apply this to each one of our lives. Lord, may we not continue as we have been, but live in light of this gospel, this gospel that is the power of God. For any of those who do not know you today, Lord Jesus, who have not been reconciled to you and saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, I ask that you turn their hearts to you today, that they may repent of their sin and see Christ as their only Savior, their only hope, and trust in Jesus for their salvation. Lord, I pray for the remaining sin in our lives, that by the power of your Holy Spirit we might kill sin and that way live for Christ. And for our love for one another, I pray that this power of this gospel and to consider how much God has forgiven us that we might love and forgive each other and therefore manifest the gospel in our own relationships that you might be glorified in our church. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.